This is Aaron Mankey from Lore, and you're listening to Curious Minds. From PI Media, this is Curious Minds. I'm Rand Levy. And I'm Kelly O'Loughlin. This episode, The History of File Sharing, Part 1, The Rise and Fall of Napster. You know, Ron, file sharing is a phenomenon that's as old as the World Wide Web. Yeah, even when the internet was tiny and only a handful of people were using it, file sharing was already very common. Thousands of users were sharing images, books, and songs. So here's an example that might give you a sense of how big file sharing was, even way back into the 1980s and 90s. In 1994, the FBI raided a house belonging to Edwina and Eddie Hardenberg in California. From their bedroom, the married couple operated a file sharing service using modems. And for those of you who aren't into ancient technology, a modem is a device that allows two computers to communicate with each other through physical phone lines, or what you might know as landlines. Eddie and Edwina had 124 phone lines. They practically built a mini empire of file sharing, serving thousands of users who exchanged gigabytes of games, hacked software, and pornography back and forth on a daily basis. The FBI agents confiscated hundreds of computers from their house. But although many people were already sharing files, there was still one major problem that limited the popularity of file sharing. And that problem was discovery. That is, if I want to download a file, say, the latest Chuck Norris film, how do I find it? How do I know who has the movie? Hold on, Chuck Norris? Does he even make movies anymore? Uh, Israel is very far from the US, you know, and things take time to get to us. By the way, have you heard about Pokemon Go? <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, to help me explain this so-called discovery problem, that is, how to discover who has the files I want, I decided to take an unusual approach. A few months ago, I posted on Facebook a request for our listeners in Israel to meet me spontaneously near a train station in Tel Aviv. Well, that sounds fun, but did you tell them why you wanted to meet or what it was even about? No, I promised it would be fun. Based on this rather lame promise, I was able to persuade eight listeners to accompany me at dusk to the heart of a big park. And there, when they could no longer run away, I explained what I wanted them to do. Okay, this is... now this is starting to sound a little weird. What we ended up doing, you'll hear in a moment, but I can only say that for a while, we were the biggest attraction in the park. I can promise you that. So, generally speaking, we can say that the internet has two sorts of computers. Servers. Hi. And clients. Hey! <laughs> I think I understand why you were the biggest attraction of the park. <laughs> I think we were lucky we didn't get arrested by the police. But anyhow, the clients are domestic computers, personal devices, while the servers, as their name insinuates, provide services like hosting files, music files, for instance. 
In such case, if a user wants to listen to a certain song and clicks on a link, his computer communicates with the server Yay! and requests the file of the song. If the server has access to the file, yeah. it sends it to the user's computer. This is the standard method of file sharing, the one that was used by the Hunderbergs in California. Their computers were the servers, while the people who phoned in were the clients. But what happens if a server doesn't have a certain file, but another user has it? Think of it this way. Let's say you want to read a certain book. There is a chance that your upstairs neighbor has a copy of it and would be happy to lend it to you, but since you've never been in his apartment, how could you know whether or not he has the book? That is the same basic issue of the file-sharing world. If I am one out of millions of anonymous users, how could other users know if I have a file they are interested in? This discovery problem limited the ability of worldwide users to share files with each other. The company responsible for removing this great obstacle launched the era of modern file sharing and was one of the most famous software companies in history. Napster. Oh, Napster. I'm very familiar with Napster. It brings back a lot of good memories of my college days. So, Napster was created by Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, two enthusiastic computer geeks who met on tech forums when they were just 15 years old. In 1999, Sean Fanning was a college student in Boston. And since he was known as a person who slept in a lot in the morning, his friends started calling him Napster. One night, while having a beer with friends, Fanning heard them whining about how hard it is to find MP3 files. Back then, in the late 1990s, there were already a few internet websites that enabled users to download songs. For example, Audio Galaxy and Hotline. But so many of the links on those sites were dead. That means that the files behind the links were deleted for some reason or another, and the links led nowhere. You had to try dozens and dozens of dead links until you found a live one. This discussion made Fanning have an epiphany. He realized that, in addition to the technological ability of sending a file from one computer to another, a file-sharing software must have two additional characteristics. It must allow users to chat with each other and make it easy to see the files that other users have. These two features were pretty easy to implement. All he had to do was create a software that had all three. He described this idea to his friend, Sean Parker, who also found it fascinating. They contacted Sean's uncle, John Fanning, an entrepreneur and a startup investor who made his fortune in the field of computerized chess games. John gave Napster its initial funding. But before they could act on their idea, Fanning and Parker had to consider the legal aspects of what they were about to do. After all, it was clear that many of the songs their users would be sharing among themselves were going to be pirated copies which violated the artist's copyrights. Now, copyright law is a very complicated thing, so I've enlisted a fellow podcaster who's also a lawyer to help us find our way through this legal labyrinth. Uh, my name is Brett Bendistis. Uh, I am an attorney barred in Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, but the base of my practice is in Delaware. So I work primarily in the state of Delaware. 
Um, I have been, uh, I worked for a general practice firm for a very long time, uh, and then I teach primarily. So right now I teach at a few different institutions, and uh, I sort of help people write briefs and motions and all that stuff. I do a podcast called The uh, Citizen's Guide to the Supreme Court with my friend Nazem. Uh, We take a look once a week at Supreme Court cases and try to give kind of the average person or a person without a law degree who feels maybe intimidated by the law uh, a good idea of, one, what are these cases about? But two, if these cases affect your life, which I think is like the big threshold to get into, how do they affect your life? And, you know, it dovetails into different areas, but the point of it is that it's two friends talking about the law and trying to make it uh, easy, accessible, uh, funny if we can, um, but just trying to make it where you're kind of listening to two people really talk about the law and, and, and show their passion about it, really. Brett and his podcast partner, Nazim, are not our usual lawyers. On their website, they define themselves as, quote, two attorneys who hate being attorneys. Brett is a particularly good fit for this episode since he's also a musician. He's been playing the drums since he was seven years old. I think you're, you're the first drummer lawyer I've ever heard of, I think. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's sort of where I go, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, drumming lawyer, is, uh, it's a weird niche, but I, I, I do it well. So for starters, I asked Brett to explain the various types of protection the law gives to creators. There are three different like primary types of intellectual property where it's like trademarks, copyrights, and patents. And this is like painting with a pretty broad brush. Um, but you can generally classify it where it's like copyright is artistic, trademarks is like business, and patents are like science. You know what I mean? For lack of a better term. So they all have their different level of protections where it's sort of like the length of them is really dependent on this balance between we want to protect the people who... Create it, right? Like, we want to give you some protection, but we also don't want what you've made to not be improved. So the way copyright works is it gives you almost like an exclusive use to use what you've created. The usage that you have is really very broad. I mean, you have the right to license it, reproduce it, create it, modify it, destroy it. It's sort of like the difference between not only are you able to you write a song, you get to decide who ingests it, who buys it, that kind of thing. But you're also sort of entitled to decide whether you want anyone to do it. So, you know, if you write a, a book of poetry and you copyright it, you can, like, trash the whole thing and nobody can do anything, even if it's, like, the greatest poetry in the entire world. Uh, and there's some caveats to it that are sort of tied in with the cases where it's, like, it's not universal in that there's public domain where... Uh, after a certain period of time, when your copyright expires, uh, it goes in the public domain and anybody can use it. Um, Nazem has this sort of joke where um, that the time length of, of public domain is dependent on how much Disney lobbies to get the extension going further. So basically, like whenever Mickey Mouse goes into the public domain, public domain gets moved <laughs> further down the line. Um, it's a race against Mickey Mouse. It is a race against Mickey Mouse, exactly. Napster's founders were very much aware of the legal risk they were taking. If record labels, the copyrights owners, could prove that Napster had legal responsibility to the copyright infringements of its users, they could sue the software company. So the two friends knew that they had to find a solution to this legal problem before they could put any more effort into their enterprise. 
The solution they eventually found stemmed from one of the most famous and important verdicts in US history, Sony Cooperation of America versus Universal City Studios in 1984. Sony, the famous technology cooperation, marketed a video cassette tape based on a technology called Betamax. Some of those who purchased the tape used it to record movies and then share them with their friends. Universal City Studios, who owned many of the copyrights for those movies, argued in court that sharing recorded movies is an infringement of its copyrights and that Sony, the makers of the tapes and inventor of the new technology, should be held responsible for those infringements since without the tapes there would be no infringement. But Universal City Studios lost the case. The court concluded that just because a new technology allows copyright infringements by people who purchase it is not a sufficient cause to prohibit the public from using it. Most of Sony's customers were using the VCR in a way called time shifting. They were recording TV shows that were aired for free at a certain time and then watching them later. Pretty much the same way we watch everything nowadays, kind of. The court decided that time shifting was a legitimate use for VCR technology, and so the right of the inventor to invent exceeds the right of the copyright holder to protection. And by the way, Sony won the battle, but ultimately lost the war. Consumers preferred a competing technology known as VHS, and Betamax never took off. But the court's ruling had significant long-term importance since it allowed investors to continue innovating without the fear of being prosecuted. If it wasn't for Betamax, we wouldn't have MP3 music players, DVD devices, and more. Fanning and Parker decided to use the shelter of the Betamax ruling. John Fanning, their investor, later said, quote, I had read every Ninth Circuit opinion on copyright and felt that Sony Betamax and substantial non-infringing use were certain defenses. Additionally, we had immunity from liability under DMCA. I said, okay, we need to design our network in such a way that the MP3 files themselves never touch our network. If the files move between users directly, we're safe and can legitimately defend ourselves if they sue. End quote. In other words, Napster would emulate Sony. It would only supply the underlying technological infrastructure, but it would be the users who would be responsible for any actual copyright infringements. And so, Sean Fanning locked himself in his uncle's office for a 60-hour programming marathon. When he finally emerged from the office, he carried with him the first version of Napster. The initial reactions to the new project weren't so enthusiastic, to say the least. An experienced programmer told Fanning that he should just forget the whole thing and concentrate on studying. He was convinced that there was no way computer users would allow random people to see what was on their computer, not to mention sharing files with other people. Fanning's parents were also disappointed that he chose Napster over his studies, somewhat unsurprisingly. But Sean Fanning didn't have those doubts. The idea had such a strong grip on him that one day he got up and just left his dorm and never came back. He just got up and left. Yeah, the story is that he left behind his clothes, his books, everything. So before we move on, let's talk about Napster on a more technological level and find out how it allowed one internet user to discover what files another internet user had and then move those files around. 
When a user installed the Napster software on his computer, it read his hard drive and identified the MP3 files stored on it. It then sent a list of those file names to a central server that belonged to Napster itself. Notice this one important fact. The software only sent the file names, not the actual songs themselves. This fact will be significant later on. Now, let's assume that I was looking for a song, say, Born in the USA by Springsteen. And let's assume that you, Kelly, use Napster and that you have an MP3 file of that song. My computer, the client, Hi. communicates with Napster's server, Hi. and asks where one could find the file borninthusa.mp3. Napster's server searches its repository of file names from all users and soon finds out that you, Kelly, has it. Yeah. Now the server sends me your internet address, the IP address. Using Napster, my computer Hi. communicates with your computer. Yay! And then you send the file to my computer. The first and most important characteristic of this method is that the actual sharing is done between the two clients, and not between the client and the server. This sort of file sharing is called peer-to-peer, -peer, noting the fact that the two computers are just equal peers of the same network. The second important characteristic is the fact that the server, owned by Napster, doesn't store any MP3 files at any point of the exchange. It only mediates between sellers and buyers, so to speak, and eases the communication between them. The fact that the server doesn't store MP3 files gave Napster the Betamax protection, at least in theory. Besides the legal protection, this approach had two other advantages. The first is that the company didn't have to store millions of files, which is a major technological challenge. The other is the saving on bandwidth. If Napster's server had to actually send MP3 files to thousands of users at the same time, it would have required a significant communication infrastructure. But since the files were shared between the clients, the burden of communication was on their shoulders, or their modems, I guess. To say that Napster was a success would be an understatement. The simple software created by an 18-year-old in a marathon of pizza and soda became a huge hit. The number of users doubled every few weeks, and at its peak in February 2001, Napster had about 80 million active users per month. In comparison, Yahoo, one of the biggest websites at that time, had only 54 million users. Napster was especially successful among college students, so much so that the file-sharing traffic threatened to overload the university's networks, and some of them had to block the software in order to stop it from affecting academic work. Personally, I have very fond memories of using Napster as a college kid. It was a really exciting time of discovering and hearing so much new music and lots of bands that I'd never heard of. I spent hours and hours downloading and listening to songs. If it wasn't for Napster and also Audio Galaxy, which I used a lot, a lot of the music I even still listen to today, I would never have discovered back then. Mm, same here. So what made Napster so successful compared to other software and file-sharing websites? 
Well, the first element has to do with the fact that the software focused on MP3 files only and allowed sharing music, but not movies, games, or other software. You might remember one of our earlier episodes with Dr. Karl-Heinz Brandenburg, the inventor of the MP3, and you'll know that although MP3 files are quite small, they still have a high quality of audio. Another element has to do with the few smart defaults that Fanning and Parker implemented into their software. For example, a user that wanted to download a file had to allow others to download files from his or her computer, so you couldn't just take files without giving back. No free lunch. And a third element of Napster's success, and maybe the most important, is how easily users could find the files that they wanted. With a click of a button, a user could scan millions of computers and even find songs that were normally really hard to find, like old recordings, bootleg versions, and rare concerts. Discovering new music became as easy as using a microwave. Open the software, click, and wait. There was no reason to really spend time at the music stores anymore. Well, record labels sure noticed that people were buying less music. And it's no surprise that they considered Napster to be a real threat. The phenomena of file sharing on the internet had been a problem for them for a while, but now, with Napster, file sharing became almost industrial in scale, and of course, almost all the files exchanged between users were protected by copyrights, owned by record labels. So, in December 1999, Only six months after Napster was launched, the major record companies, Universal City Studios, Sony Corporation, EMI, and others, filed suit against Napster. While this was a predictable move that Fanning and Parker anticipated, it was a second lawsuit that caught them by surprise. In 2000, Metallica, one of the world's most renowned heavy metal bands, recorded a new song for the movie Mission Impossible. The song's title was I Disappear. One day, Lars Ulrich, the band's drummer, heard the song playing on a local radio station. Ulrich was astounded. The song wasn't even released yet. They hadn't even done a final recording. How did a radio station get a hold of a draft version? After looking into it, he discovered that someone had shared the song on Napster. In fact, all of Metallica's records were available for download on the web for free. Shocked, Ulrich shared his discovery with his bandmates and they were livid. Not only was their right to choose when and how to release their songs denied, it was obvious that they wouldn't make a dime on records that could be copied so easily. And if there's one thing we can safely say about heavy metal bands it's that they don't tend to keep their grudges penned up. In April of 2000, Metallica decided in an unprecedented move to file a lawsuit against Napster, demanding tens of millions of dollars due to their responsibility for the copyright infringement. As we said before, Napster expected the record companies to sue, but the fact that Metallica chose to side with the record labels despite being a band that represented an anti-establishment sentiment was a classic case of man bites dog, or in this case, guitar breaks person. The media was delighted at the news. Lars Ulrich testified in front of the Senate's special committee on file sharing, and the band even provided Napster with a 60,000-page document 
printed that contained the IP addresses of 300,000 users who shared Metallica songs. Napster agreed to block the accounts of all 300,000 users, a move that motivated another famous artist, the rapper Dr. Dre, to follow a similar lawsuit against Napster. Even Madonna wasn't happy, to say the least, to discover that her new single was already shared by users. This fascinating case received worldwide coverage, and the media followed the story closely. While Metallica, Dr. Dre, and Madonna were against Napster, some artists supported the young company. Dave Grohl, the former Nirvana drummer, said in an interview, quote, I think that music should be available to anyone who wants to listen to it. There shouldn't be a price tag on music. Maybe there should be a price tag on the package. You pay 30 bucks and get the artwork, the photos, the stickers. But I don't want to open the radio and put a nickel every time I want to listen to Metallica. I can understand why some people say Napster is taking money away from me. But you know what? When it's someone who sold 50 million copies and made 50 million dollars and then he bitches about nickels, go f*** yourself, man. In most cases, the division was obvious. Known and successful artists were against file sharing, while young and unknown ones were in favor of it. Those who had nothing to lose supported Napster and considered it a way to help people discover the music. For example, Radiohead, a band that wasn't that successful yet, had its new record leaked to the web three months before its official debut. At the time, none of Radiohead's previous songs made it to the Billboard's top 20 list, and records weren't selling. The new album, Kid A, was an experimental album, so no one expected it to be any different. But when it was finally aired, Kid A was a top seller, without even being played on the radio that much, all due to its success in Napster. Other artists, such as Limp Bizkit and The Offspring, also used Napster in order to promote their tours. Despite their harshness towards Napster, record labels did see the positive potential behind the new technology. Richard Menta, an American journalist, wrote the following in one of his columns. Quote, Big music is not stupid. Many in the ranks see the promotional benefits Napster is having on them. At the very least, rising CD sales show it hasn't done anything to harm them. But what they don't like is an entity with such power that they don't control. Such an entity, they fear, can eventually undermine the profits that come with an oligopoly. There's evidence to the fact that at least some of the record labels saw where the wind was blowing in the attempt to purchase Napster just before the court case closed. The German media giant, Bertelsmann AG, which was actually one of the prosecutors in the lawsuit, surprised the music world when it announced that it planned to acquire the small company. In fact, Napster's CEO at that point was actually a former executive at Bertelsmann AG, and he was the one who put the deal together. According to other media reports, Napster had discussed similar deals with other record companies, but those didn't work out due to disagreements regarding the dollar amounts. While legal actions against Napster continued, in July of 2000, the company had to face yet another disaster. The judge who discussed their case in the inferior court ordered Napster to remove all the songs protected by copyrights within 72 hours. Otherwise, he would shut Napster down. 
Napster appealed to the Supreme Court, claiming that it was unable to technically execute the court's order. Six months later, in February of 2001, the appeal was rejected, and Napster found itself facing two bad options. Either find a way to filter all the songs that are protected by copyrights and prevent users from sharing them on its network, or shut down. But why was Napster's appeal rejected? After all, Parker and Fanning did their best to take advantage of the Betamax defense, remember? They designed the software so it would emulate Sony's position. Napster servers weren't storing the MP3 files themselves. It was the users who were doing all the copyright infringement, right? Well, as Brett, our drummer-slash-lawyer, will explain, there were two crucial differences between the Napster case and the Sony Betamax case. There's a bit of contradictory language in that decision, which makes it hard to read, but the overall holding of it is they say, this case is distinguished from Sony because unlike so the VCR company that didn't really know what the people were doing with it, the Napster company knows that the primary usage of Napster is copyright infringement. So in that instance, the court's really saying, you know, you don't even really apply under Sony because you are like more culpable because you are permitting and you are fully aware of like what you're doing and what you're allowing it to happen. I mean, I think the Betamax defense is predicated on this idea that if we're going to hold someone liable for copyright infringement, we really need to make sure that they are purposefully engaged in copyright infringement. Once again, I think that like one of the big differences technologically between the VCR and Napster is that after you sell someone a VCR, you cannot control in any way what they use it for. Like once you make the box, you give it to someone, they open it up, they can do whatever they want with it and you have absolutely no control. So a decision there is is really inhibiting uh, the usage of the product. You know what I mean? Whereas Napster is something where Napster always has full control over how its users are using it. Now, that might be overbroad. You know what I mean? Like, again, I'm not a technological person. I don't know the nuts and bolts of Napster. But because they have constant control over the software, I think the court looks at it and says, well, because you sort of know what's happening, because you can control sort of what happens, we're not going to give you the same benefit of the doubt that we gave to Sony. In other words, Napster's server held the file names of all those MP3s, and so Napster did actually know when its users were sharing copyright-protected files. Sony, on the other hand, didn't. Also, the main usage of the VCR was time-shifting, like we said earlier, recording a TV show so that you could watch it later. Napster's usage, on the other hand, was very different. The primary usage of time-shifting is you are... Uh, enjoying free a free product that you are allowed to use just at a later time. There's a big difference there where you're not getting something for free because you were always allowed to get it. Um, that really had a huge amount of sway in that Sony decision because there's not a whole lot of harm there because that person would have enjoyed it anyway just based on timing considerations. Napster does not have that same defense because of how it's used. They sort of created three things that are similar to time shifting, but they're very flimsy arguments. The arguments are that uh, there's sampling, which is that a person is using Napster so they can sample a product and then buy it. 
Uh, there is space shifting, which is that like you're getting a product on Napster that you've already bought so you can have it in different mediums. And then there was something called permissive distribution, meaning that Napster is allowed to use um, copyrighted material where the person allows that copy mater- copyrighted material to be used. The problem with all of those arguments is that At the end of the day, people who get things on Napster are taking them without paying them. Like, there's an assumption there that you're using it because you've already bought it or with the future intentions to buy it. But I don't remember anyone buying a CD that they downloaded for free. Like, nobody used Napster and then we're like, hey, you know, I'm going to honor system. I'm going to go buy this CD. Nobody ever did that. And I'm sure nobody does that now. So... They're really sort of flimsy arguments that don't have that same effect. I would look on a factual level that the big difference between why Sony was ruled one way and Napster was ruled another is because there was greater harm to the copyright holders than there was in Sony. Because as the copyright holder in Napster, you're actually losing monetary value. Uh, And this isn't specifically stated. I mean, there's a big dance when it comes to whether damages need to be proven and how. But if you read between the lines, it seems as though because there's less damages with the VCR, the court is sort of saying, hey, listen, we don't really need to get involved in that. Whereas Napster, the balance of the monopoly and people's, you know, permissive use is just way out of whack. And it just takes away too much, too much money from the copyright holder. So the bottom line was, Napster wasn't able to use the Betamax defense after all. The company had no choice but to turn off the lights and cease all activity in order to fulfill the court order. Napster's executives searched for a solution that would allow the company to survive. It was obvious that blocking copyright-protected songs would make the users abandon the software. The only possible solution they had was to try and launch a paid service that would allow legal access to music files. Napster's programmers wrote a new version, Napster 3.0, but the company was unable to close any deals with the record labels regarding purchasing copyrights. The last option for Napster was to merge with Bertelsmann AG. The deal was supposed to provide some cash flow and allow it to sell songs legally. In May of 2002, Napster announced that it reached an agreement with the German company according to which it would be sold for the amount of $85 million. But several record labels petitioned the court regarding the legality of the deal, and three months later, the court ordered to cancel the deal, arguing that there is a conflict of interest with the CEO of Napster being former executive at Bertelsmann. Dismissing the deal was the end of Napster. The company was never profitable and no source of income was in sight. A few days after the judge's ruling, all 40 Napster employees were let go, and on the company's homepage, the famous logo of a cat wearing earphones was replaced by an illustration of a grave with the caption, Napster was here. All the company's properties, including its logo, were sold to a different company. Officially, Napster still exists today, but it's very different from its original image. The real Napster died. The three founders moved on. John Fanning, the investor, went back to invest in computerized chess games. Sean Fanning became an entrepreneur and founded a few other startup companies. His personal wealth is estimated at a few million dollars. 
Sean Parker, said that the first few years after Napster shut down were extremely difficult. He was dealing with personal debts and ended up crashing on friends' couches. He was afraid that if he was ever to make money again, record labels would take him back to court. Therefore, he made an effort to avoid the media. Oh, poor Sean. It sounded like that really hurt him. Don't worry. There is no need to feel sorry for him. Eventually, he got lucky. He was one of the first investors in a small company. You may have heard of them. Facebook? <laughs> Today, his personal wealth is estimated at more than a billion dollars. Okay, I don't feel bad for him. Even though Napster's tale ended badly, it's not the end of the story. In fact, Napster's defeat was the incentive for a new, more sophisticated generation of file-sharing networks. Emule, eDonkey, Nutella, Kazaa, and many others. File-sharing technology itself changed in order to prevent any legal action similar to the one that destroyed Napster. And now, not only MP3 files were shared, but also movies and hacked games. And as you might have expected, record labels weren't idle. To supplement the judicial battle, they also tried some shady tactics, like poisoning the file-sharing network with fake files. And then came BitTorrent, which shuffled all the cards. All that and more, next time on Curious Minds. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. A big thanks to Brett from the Citizen's Guide to the Supreme Court podcast. You'll find the podcast at cgtsc.wordpress.com. That's cgtsc.wordpress.com. The Citizen's Guide to the Supreme Court. If law is your thing, don't miss out on the Citizen's Guide. It's both interesting and informative. And while we're on the topic of interesting podcasts, history buffs, you should definitely check out the History of Byzantium podcast, a podcast telling the lesser-known story of the Eastern Roman Empire, the part of the great empire that survived past the 5th century AD all the way to 1453. It's an amazing piece of long history that's virtually almost always ignored. But Robin Pearson dedicated to it an incredible 117 episodes so far and counting. Have a listen to the History of Byzantium at historyofbyzantium.com. Our website is siampod.net, where you'll find all of our previous episodes, such as the history of open source software, the history of the Black Death Plague, the story of Stuxnet, the first cyber weapon, and many more episodes on varying topics from science and technology to medicine and space. Join our mailing list and you'll receive an update each time a new episode is out. Curious Minds are Kelly O'Loughlin, co-host and editor, Danny Timor is our business manager, and me, Rand Levy, executive producer and writer. See you again next week. Bye-bye.